I suddenly realised, I remember saying, Michael is not coming home. I couldn't go to the door dead, but I knew Michael wasn't coming home. In the early hours of February the 14th, 1981, 48 young people died when fire engulfed the Stardust nightclub in Artane, Dublin. He said, uh, place is on fire, we're not going to get everybody out. Tell the officer to send absolutely everything that you have. Nobody saw it coming. If they did, it was already too late. Just people were screaming outside. You could hear them screaming. 846 people came through the doors that night. 44 would never come out. Four more died in hospital. It was one of Ireland's most catastrophic tragedies. And then everything went black. Then everybody started squealing and roaring and, and you could see the flames, do you know what I mean? And everybody then, it was just like wild animals. Getting out was a lottery. There was a state play and bars on the window, so we, we couldn't get out. Only fate decided who lived and who died. For some survivors, they never really got out. And for the families left behind, their souls were taken with their kids inside that building. Those that got out of the building got out of hell, but we've lived in hell. They were left at the mercy of an uncaring state. I want to know why the state interfered. I want questions answered. This is the story of the Stardust tragedy. Brought to you by the Irish Sun. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a saying in gangland, to be number one, find the right number two. In any big criminal enterprise, this rings true. And it's much of what episode two of the Kinahans will look at. How Christy Kinahan found his right-hand man and turned his fortunes from a living room operation in Fairview to an emerging cross-border cartel. Tonight, the Gardaí are directing their attention at the criminal underworld, seeking intelligence, looking for signs that certain known criminals may have gone missing. During the Troubles, Tiger kidnappings were commonplace within Republican factions, but not quite as frequent within organised crime. A successful heist could earn you cash in the millions, but it was a high-stakes game which put most criminals off. However, one Dublin gang saw the IRA's success and they wanted a share of it. The gang in question was led by Dublin criminal John Cunningham, 
a.k.a. The Colonel. You're his son, Stephen Breen. John Cunningham was a very well-known criminal at that time. Um, he was a very experienced criminal. He had strong pedigree when it came to the underworld and uh, Gineland. Owen Conlon, co-author of The Cartel. So John Cunningham was a violent armed robber in the 80s who decided, along with his brother Michael, that they were going to go for the heist of their life. And in this case, it turned out to be kidnapping. Their targets... The Guinness family, specifically Jennifer Guinness, heir to the brewing and banking fortune that had been passed down between generations. On April the 8th, 1986, the Cunningham brothers, along with an associate, Anthony Kelly, went for it. They made their way towards Hoth Hill to the Guinness family mansion. The kidnapped victim herself opened the door to the three armed callers who forced their way in. As for the gang itself, they seemed surprisingly unprepared, even untrained for the action. They brought no tie-up ropes and used neckties from the house. For experienced organised criminals, the heist was filled with errors. When Mr Guinness arrived home from work, he was taken into the dining room. And there, the kidnappers made their first mistake. John Henry Guinness made a move for a gun that was lying in plain sight. Cunningham was too quick for him, though, and struck him in the face. He also fired a warning shot at a portrait of an elder Guinness relative. Just below a painting of his grandmother, the bullet lodged in the wall, and when retrieved by Gardy, was to be one of their most important clues. Forensic analysis of the bullet showed that it was homemade, and that convinced detectives they were dealing with criminals, not subversives. The gang forced their hostage into a car and headed north towards Swords, leaving a demand for a ransom of two million and the code word Jackal. Furthermore, Gillian Guinness had noticed that one of the gang had a stiff finger, an observation that was to prove vital in identifying the gang responsible for her mother's abduction. An experienced detective recalled that one of the Cunningham brothers had a stiff finger that plagued him with pain. It had come up in a previous arrest. Connections were being made, and on inquiry the gang were also missing from their usual haunts around the capital. Meanwhile, the Cunninghams and Anthony Kelly brought Jennifer Guinness to a safe house on Waterloo Road. But the Gardaí were closing in. The seize began here at Waterloo Road about one o'clock. When Gardaí surrounded number 61, they encountered a man trying to escape through the back garden. Shots were exchanged between Kelly and the cops, but he was soon arrested. John and Michael Cunningham were still inside. About an hour later, Mrs Guinness appeared at one of the windows and spoke to the Gardaí, and I was told she's all right. Witnesses on the day recalled the negotiations between the Cunningham brothers and the Gardaí. They knew they were surrounded. Before that, though, they were shouting for a guy called Johnny to, to smash the window because they couldn't talk to them. To smash the window. So eventually smashed the window, couldn't get over or something. After hours of failed talks, the Cunninghams realised the jig was up and surrendered. A long stint behind bars awaited the gang. John Cunningham ended up getting 17 years for that. A 17-year spell in Mount Joy was nothing to celebrate. 
but Cunningham's fortunes would change on the inside. You see, in that same year of 86, Christy Kinahan goes down for the heroin bust in Fairview. On the table was a huge amount of heroin. A much leaner stretch of just four years. But those years would prove vital. Once inside, it wasn't long before he crossed paths with the colonel, John Cunningham, in the halls of Mountjoy. With similar aspirations to wealth and power, it was only natural that a young Christie would gravitate towards such an experienced offender. Christie and John spent hours and hours planning what they could do together once they got out. A relationship that would span decades to come. And he said to me, he said, you think you're so smart, he said. I followed you one night. He used his time cleverly. And it's almost like as if he had a plan. The Kinahans is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Damien Lane. If you liked what you've heard so far, please leave us a review on your podcast app. It only takes a second. Episode 2. The Seeds of the Cartel. It's impossible to tell the full story of the Kinahans without telling that of the Hutches too. By 2015, their paths had become so intertwined that gangland in Ireland would never be the same again. But things weren't always frosty between the two crime families. In fact, Christie had spent chunks of his youth snatching handbags with Eddie Hutch, Jerry's brother. The Hutch family would still largely have been involved primarily in uh, sort of respectable crime, you might say. Uh, Jerry Hutch was an armed robber. Garthy forensic experts were trying to piece together how five men last night carried out one of the most daring robberies in the state's history. He was against drugs. Some were beginning to use drugs and to begin to sell them as well, but it wasn't anything that Jerry Hutch had... um, had approved or even wanted to see happen. The Hutches, and particularly Jerry, were very respected within the North Inner City community. In many respects, they still are. Mick Rafferty recalls how the Hutches joined forces with the concerned parents to distinguish themselves from the Larry Dunns and the John Gilligans of this world. The monk and, and his... Uh people aligned themselves with us and made it very clear that they had nothing to do with uh, heroin and they were ordinary decent criminals. ODC, or Ordinary Decent Criminal, is a term you'll hear a lot over the course of this series. In essence, an ordinary decent criminal didn't deal drugs in the community. Like the monk and his, his, they weren't drug dealers. They were criminals and they'd admit it. So that was the thing about the 90s. There was a complete separation. Uh, nobody had any illusions. And the new breed of dealers, which you still have, were uh, scum, basically. In 1992, Christie was released from Mountjoy Jail after serving four years behind bars. The Fairview arrest hadn't scuppered his enterprising plans and upon release he didn't waste time picking up where he left off. 
The drugs market had, however, changed. And opportunities to make money were even greater than before. Rave and Acid House had hit the UK. The second summer of love had come and gone, and while Kinahan was behind bars, ecstasy was now a weekend staple for masses of club goers around Ireland. Heroin was taking a back seat, and drug use was no longer confined to working class areas of the capital, so even larger profits were there to be made. By early 93, it's believed Christie was splitting his time between Ireland and Tamworth, a small market town near Birmingham. We don't know a whole pile about that uh, time because he was, again, relatively low level. He was, again, building contacts in the Tamworth area and married a Dutch woman. Their marriage lasted just six years. Christie wasn't just dealing drugs during this period. In June 1993, there was a National Building Society raid that took place in Drumcondra, where 16 grand's worth of travellers' checks were stolen and the Gardaí suspected Kinahan's involvement straight away. So he ended up meeting somebody who was going to pass him on the checks, and again the Gardaí were watching. They had their informants on the ball, and uh, he was arrested and charged, but he didn't fancy going back to prison. Christie decided to jump bail and flee Ireland. This time the Netherlands would be his destination. Now in his mid-thirties, he felt it was time to scale up operations and branch out into firearm trafficking as a complement to his narco operation. He no longer saw himself as a criminal or a fraudster. He saw himself as a businessman and spent a lot of the mid-90s putting in the hard work, making contacts and forging relationships that would ultimately allow him to grow his empire in the new millennium. Chris Kinahan went to Amsterdam and he learned from his mistakes in the past and he made valuable contacts. He met people from Colombia, the Netherlands and from Spain. By 1996, he was, he was sending some sizable amounts of drugs back to Ireland. Cannabis, heroin, ecstasy, he was involved in it all. The year 1996 would change the landscape of organised crime forever in Ireland. Two events changed history. Good evening. There has been widespread condemnation of the killing of the crime reporter Veronica Guerin, who was shot in Dublin this afternoon. I suppose up to the death of Veronica Guerin, the attitude of the state was uh, as long as the problem is contained within the ghettos, sure, they don't know any better, you know. She was exposing and naming who was dealing, and that's why she was taken out. And then the state realised that these dealers weren't just a, a threat to the vulnerable people in the ghettos, they were a threat to them and to their sort of class. The second, the introduction of CAB, Criminal Assets Bureau. Like after Veronica Gurdon murder, there were six different pieces of legislation put in place. You know, law enforcement have been looking for that legislation forever. And when it came along, there was a seismic shift in the criminal underworld. No longer could they have four and five mansions and not work a day in their life. 
cab was set up four short months after Gearan's murder. The Gardaí, with the help of the Revenue Commission and the Department of Social Protection, were now able to target organised crime like never before. Seamus Boland is Detective Chief Superintendent of the Gardaí's Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau. Whether you've criminal convictions or not, if you have unaccounted wealth, you're living a lifestyle that's way outside your legitimate disclosed means. You know, the state has the powers to seize assets from you uh, or even indeed to tax you on unaccounted earnings. They realised that the taxman with the guards were going to come along and seize their house and say, now prove it. So that legislation resulted in you know, criminals at the, the very high end who had money, who wished to spend their money, Ireland wasn't the place to do it. So Spain, uh, Holland, other countries like that seemed like the obvious locations for them to travel to. And then when they travelled to, to these locations, that facilitated then meeting with other international organised crime groups. Kinahan was already ahead of the curve having operated from Amsterdam in the years before the legislation was introduced. However, it did mean any hope of returning home to Ireland was slim if he was to continue to build his empire. The establishment of the Criminal Assets Bureau also justified the stance that Christy Kinnan had taken, the means upon which he had based his business model. And that business model was pretty simple. It was basing himself abroad in European countries and sending drugs and arms and other contraband back to Ireland. For Christiana's fledgling cartel, 1996 dealt them one positive card. At this time, John Gilligan was the only real competitor in the Irish drugs market. When Veronica Gearan was murdered, Gilligan's gang were thought to have been responsible and soon became public enemy number one. Although John Gilligan would later be acquitted, the scale and depth of the investigations completely paralysed his trafficking operations, leaving much more room for Christie's to grow. There was a gap in the market. They were there to fill it. They had the contacts. They had the suppliers. They had the routes down. They knew that they were ready to step into that slot. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 1996 dealt Christie one further surprise. John Cunningham, Christie's criminal confidant from Mountjoy, was 10 years into his sentence for kidnapping Jennifer Guinness. Cunningham's plan was to see out the remainder of his time in Shelton Abbey, an open prison in County Wicklow, where he'd been residing for a number of months because of good behaviour. In an open prison, inmates could walk the grounds and mainly do what they like, 
as long as they stayed inside the confines of the prison grounds and adhered to the daily curfew. On September the 15th, Michael Houlihan, the prison's deputy governor, made a visit to the Valley Hotel in Woodenbridge, County Wicklow. He was there with his wife to watch an All-Ireland football final between Mayo and Mead. The couple were both big GAA fans. Houlihan was well liked within the prison, but commanded a strict no-nonsense policy for both prisoners and prison officers. While waiting for their drinks to be poured, things took an unexpected turn. The Colonel, John Cunningham, himself a fellow GAA man, walked through the door of the pub with another inmate. The pair had absconded from Shelton Abbey for the afternoon in search of a point and to watch the game. Astounded, Michael Houlihan alerted prison officers on duty that they were down two men. Cunningham was immediately bundled back to the open prison. He knew the no-nonsense deputy governor would want them shipped back to a more secure prison for such a brazen violation of the rules. Known that night might be his last in the facility. Cunningham waited until the sun set and once again absconded from Shelton Abbey. This time for good. Using a fake passport, the career criminal somehow made his way from Wicklow to Amsterdam and in a matter of days reconnected with his old buddy, Christy Ginnan. With Cunningham's criminal experience and Kinahan's drive and ambition, the pair were confident they would work wonders as a team. The Kinahan organised crime group was now open for business. In 1997, Christie's dad, Daniel, died suddenly at home. The pair hadn't much contact in the final years of his life, but Christie was keen on making it back to Dublin for the funeral. This was despite an outstanding warrant for his arrest relating to the Drumcondra heist of travellers' cheques. A committed family man, Christie knew the risks involved, but decided to make the trip anyway. Little did he know, the Gardaí and Michael O'Sullivan had been informed of the family death and decided to stake out the funeral in case Christy made an appearance. As the funeral procession arrived at Sutton Church, lo and behold, there was Christy standing outside with the rest of the crowd. Two Gardaí in uniform approached him, the outstanding warrant in their hands. Christy knew the jig was up and his gamble to come home had backfired. We can do this the easy way or the hard way, an officer told him. Christy didn't protest and was allowed in briefly to pay his respects before being brought in for questioning. Back at the station, Michael O'Sullivan was put in charge of interviewing the fugitive. Ten years had gone by since the pair first met. 
during O'Sullivan's undercover sting operation in Fairview. I was interviewing him and he said to me, he said, you think you're so smart, he said. I followed you one night. He didn't say it that politely. Um, so I said to him, I know. A couple of years previously, Michael was out for a run around Dublin 3. It was something he tried to do a few days a week. This time around, though, he got an eerie feeling that he was being followed by a car. So I continued jogging down Clonliffe Road and turned a corner and glanced over my shoulder and I could see the car following me. What was more unusual, the man looked just like Christy Kinnan. And the car came over, very quickly over the hill and drove past me, pulled into a cul-de-sac and continued watching me. Remaining calm, he took a mental note of the details of the white vehicle and filed them back at the station that evening. Back in the interview room, Christy smirked, thinking he'd got the upper hand on Detective O'Sullivan. He wasn't aware Michael knew he'd been followed. So I said to him, I know. I told him the number of the car. The smile on Christie's face vanished as quickly as it appeared. He knew he'd been outsmarted by the quick-witted Garda. You know, so that's the cat-and-mouse game that goes on between law enforcement and criminals. Christie got four years in prison. Because he had a previous conviction for dealing heroin, he could have faced 14 years, but he got lucky with a much lighter sentence. Portleash Prison, Europe's most secure maximum security facility, awaited him. His timing was fortuitous, though, as he was no longer trying to run his criminal enterprise solo. It meant that Kinahan had an able deputy in John Cunningham there in place in Holland who could take over the operation and make sure things kept flowing just as smoothly. Christy Kinahan could place his trust in John Cunningham because they've been back a, a long time. And he was effectively uh, Kinahan's right-hand man and he played a central role in establishing the empire as John Cunningham moved from you know, organising uh, kidnappings, moving into the world of drugs and... Because of his experience in organised crime, he's the man that Christy Kinahan turned to. Um, the prison has a smell of paint, sweat and urine. For more than 30 years, David MacDonald worked in prisons across Ireland, including Port Leash, where his path would cross with Christy Kinahan and it gets into you. It actually doesn't just get on your clothes, it gets on your skin. It's a unique smell. You get used to it when you work in it, but if I was to leave the prison, come home, my wife would be saying, shower, out of that uniform, I can't bear this. Port Leash is Ireland's only maximum security jail, and is reserved for criminals who commit extremely serious crimes. David remembers Christie distinctly. He stood out from the other prisoners. He stayed very much to himself, always impeccably dressed, especially when he would have a visit, come to the prison. He would be shining. He kept himself perfect. He kept his cell immaculate. And these are very old cells in Portlaoise Prison. With at least four years ahead of him, 
Christie understood he needed to use his time in jail wisely. He was one of the first prisoners that ever got a standalone computer. So we're talking about a time when internet didn't really exist. It was only very, very new. In fact, the technology was so new, the prison wasn't aware of its potential. Because he was so engaged in education, it was encouraged. He wasn't just doing, say, a junior cert. He was actually doing um, degree courses with the Open University. He was learning Spanish and Russian, languages he felt could come in useful in the outside world. Christie also had other motives for the computer. He wanted to keep in touch with Cunningham and make sure their operations from Amsterdam were running smoothly. He's the first person I've ever seen got a mobile phone smuggled in, which wouldn't, would have been a feat in itself because back then those, these phones were quite large. He rigged the phone up to the computer, which gave him internet access. And I don't think anyone ever did that before. This man was quite intelligent. The years inside Port Leash moved slowly for Kinahan. He was pleased with the work being done on the outside by Cunningham and his boys. But he was eager to rejoin them and help grow the cartel. You know, he wasn't like everyone else. He was different. Looking back on it, he was a bit head and shoulders above the other prisoners. I'm not saying he's a nice guy. I'm not saying, you know, just to compliment him. But he used his time cleverly. It's almost like as if he had a plan and he was going to execute it. So he seemed to pick things like Spanish as a language. And I think it's pretty well documented at this stage that he would have spent quite a lot of time in Spain. But he had educated himself with the ways of the world in a way that no one else did. While Christie was behind bars, the money coming in from Amsterdam was huge. The, the money, particularly from ecstasy, was considerable. They were buying pills for about four Irish pounds each in Holland and selling them back in, in Ireland for anywhere between £10 and £15, depending on where it was and how, how much of a shortage there was. The cartel began to really hone their skills as international traffickers during those years in Amsterdam. As technology advanced, the gang were able to operate most of their business remotely with the touch of a mobile phone. Once an affluent organised crime group establishes itself or established itself, you had money, you had contacts that you were able to, to offload with, say, large amounts of, of cocaine or, or cannabis. You're linking in a meeting with other foreign groups and discussions occur and enterprises and networks just get bigger and bigger all at the same time while the world was becoming a much smaller place. So people could control, you know, huge global enterprises from a mobile phone and the level of transport logistics from continent to continent and country to country was greatly in increasing. To avoid detection at home, Cunningham had organised for a Dutch associate to drive the proceeds in a lorry back to Holland and exchanged them for guilders. He was sending so much money to these bureaux de change that later on the, the Dutch police estimated that he was responsible for approximately 60% of all punt to gilder transactions within Holland over one particular year. On the face of it, things seemed to be going well for the cartel. As long as things ran smoothly while Christie was banged up, their plan to scale even further on his return would go ahead. Like much of those early years, though, Things were about to take a turn. In December 1998, 
in a bitterly cold warehouse in Castle Blaney. A young forklift operator was unloading a crate of pita bread from the back of a truck. It had come straight from Amsterdam, and with plenty of other orders to get through, he was in a rush to process the shipment. The pallet smashed onto the floor and left a sizable hole in the side of the crate. Fuming with his carelessness, the worker went to inspect the damage. He got the surprise of his life when he shone his flashlight through the cavity. Inside was an arsenal of over 15 automatic pistols and 800 kilos of cannabis. So once the, the staff saw what was inside, they called the Gardaí and an investigation was launched. Unfortunately for John Cunningham, he'd been using the same individual who had laundered his punts into Dutch guilders to process the cartel shipment. His name was on the paperwork and the trail back to Cunningham was a very short one. So the guards informed their Dutch colleagues a surveillance operation was launched and the Dutch decided to tap both Cunningham's home phone and a phone box nearby his luxurious house. The Dutch police spent six months in 1999 trailing and listening in on Cunningham's conversations. They discovered he'd been making a number of calls to Christy Kinnan inside Portleash Prison. They were talking about drugs and code, they, they used to call amphetamines wallpaper, and they talked about bread, which meant cannabis. But the Dutch uh, called in cryptographers, code breakers from their military, and once they came in, I mean, it was pretty easily figured out what they were actually talking about. The sting uncovered the scale of the Kinahan's operations. It was difficult to fathom how much they'd grown in a relatively short period. The police had to act quickly, as it was clear Cunningham was becoming aware of the intelligence operation. The wiretaps picked him up saying to an associate, I'm telling you, there's someone on me. In March 2000, they made their move on his mansion in South Amsterdam. So they discovered a ledger in his house which indicated about 31 million euro worth of cannabis and ecstasy had been sent back to Ireland after he took over from Christy Kinnan as the head of that drug importation operation back in Holland. The raid also made clear how important firearm trafficking had become to the cartel's growing business. Also inside the house were uh, Intratec machine pistols a stair assault rifle which was used by NATO forces and nine handguns along with instruction manuals on how to use all these weapons. Up to this point, members of the cartel had got lucky with relatively lean sentences when things went awry. All of this was about to change and that was a big problem for Christie. Cunningham got seven years in prison and their joint plans of expansion had taken another blow. Once again, though, the timing was on their side. One month after Cunningham began his sentence, Christie got news that he was being released from Port Leash. After a short break, 
he could try and take things over from where Cunningham had left them. Christie walked free from Port Leash Prison in mid-2001. He didn't plan on sticking around in Ireland for long. Things were now too risky for him, so a fresh start was needed. So he moved to Belgium. He um, had fluency in Dutch, which is quite similar to Flemish, virtually identical as far as I'm, I'm aware. Before he'd been nabbed by Dutch police, Cunningham had successfully stashed 10 million worth of the gang's proceeds. The only assets they managed to take from him were 67 grand in cash found in his house. Their time in Belgium is believed to be the gang's first serious attempts into the world of money laundering. Over the course of a three-year period, Christie began to invest in local property, including a run-down casino and a handful of residential buildings. He was laundering drug profits through these properties, but Again, he began to come through to the attention of the authorities in Belgium um, for one reason or another, and they began to investigate his um, assets. The Belgians were much more advanced than their Irish counterparts when it came to financial crime. They were pretty quick to pin down that he owned these buildings and he had very little chance of arguing his way out of it. So he would subsequently be be done for money laundering, even though it was a very long and drawn-out process. The next decision that Christie would make would become one of the most influential of his life. The writing was on the wall there for him. So it was around this point in the mid-2000s that he decided it was time to move on again. He'd moved on from Ireland to England and then to Holland. Now Belgium was a busted flush for him, so he headed for Spain. The Spanish move was innocuous to begin with. But in time, it's where the Kinahans would grow into one of the fiercest criminal organisations in the world. There are a couple of important figures that have been left out of the Kinahan story so far. Daniel and Christopher, Christie's two sons, who become incredibly important characters to the narrative of this series. In our next episode, The Kids, we're going to look at how from an early age, the pair were introduced to the murky world of organised crime and how their move to the Costa del Sol had major implications for the Regency attack, the feud, and everything that has happened since. I think it's so unjust that these people live in houses that I could only dream of, and I'm not jealous of them, but it's blood money. They're building their lives on the bones of our children. Literally on the bones of our children. It's just wrong. It's so wrong. The Kinahans was brought to you by the Irish Sun. This series was hosted by me, Damien Lane, and produced by Urban Media. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, don't be shy. Leave a review. Help us get the word out there.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.